Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 6. You guys can hear me okay? All right. Judges 6. Let's read, let's begin by looking just at the first 10 verses. The aim is to to examine this down to verse 32 this evening, but let's begin by looking at the first 10 verses. Hear now this, the word of the living God. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years, and the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. So it was, whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up, also Amalekites, and the people of the east would come up against them. Then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor donkey, for they would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming in as numerous as locusts. Both they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And it came to pass, when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, and the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from the land. From Egypt, and brought you out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of all who oppressed you, and drove them out before you, and gave you their land. Also, I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. This is the word of the living God, and we say, Thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray. Ask the Lord's blessing upon his word. Our Father, I thank you for this group of believers you have gathered this Sabbath evening. I thank you for their faith, for their, for their, their new hearts that you've given them through Christ our Lord. I pray for any who do not know you, that even through this text, that you would grant them knowledge of Christ, the only one sufficient to pay that penalty we all deserve. I pray for all of us in Christ that you would strengthen our faith and bring us to be happy in you. We pray in Christ's name, amen. In God's providence, Pastor Ryan, the last few weeks in Second Peter, has spoken about faith and growing in faith, growing in knowledge of God. And in our passage here with Gideon, we will see that Gideon is a man of weak faith, and we will actually see that his faith will increase and at times decrease over times. One of the most striking things, uh, I think, at least in my initial reading of our confession, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, is the chapter on saving faith. For whatever reason, 
it has struck me that that chapter speaks about faith not as a static thing, not as a one-time thing, but as something that can grow. It can also fall. But the confession speaks to the nature of faith. And in Christian circles, you've heard terms like grow in the faith. That's interesting. What does it mean to grow in the faith? Well, you really can grow in your knowledge of God. You can grow in your strength of belief that Christ is Lord, that God is good. And then as we examine the scriptures over decades, over however long you may have known the Lord, you can actually increase. And Pastor Ryan, I think, very helpfully spoke to us about that this morning. That's something I also want to touch on this evening. First, let's get into the text. A bit of background. The book of Judges takes place over the span of hundreds of years. It tells of major events between the time of Joshua and the kings of Israel and Judah. And this book is about a people who continuously fail to remember where they came from. And in that way, it is presented to us as a warning that we may not neglect our great duty to stay on that narrow path. Broad is the way to destruction, says Christ. So take heed, believer. This chapter in Judges presents a pattern And the the pattern is a bit different from what we've seen thus far in the book. The typical judges cycle goes something like this. God's people sin. They break covenant. God hands them over to a foreign power. And then Israel cries out. And God, in his great mercy, sends a deliverer. Throughout most of the rest of the book, there are variations, as we'll see on this pattern. And here in chapter 6, we see a variation. You'll notice that God sends a prophet, not a judge, at least not at first. So notice the pattern. God's people sin. It's the very beginning. They are impoverished by a foreign power. This time, it is the Midianites. The people cry out to the Lord. So far, this is the typical pattern. Here's the variation. God sends a prophet to the people. He does not send a judge. The prophet's anonymous. You see this in verses 7 and 8. And this is an important sign, I think. The people do not simply need to be delivered from their foreign enemies. What do they need? They need the word of God. They need to be transformed by God's word. Therefore, a prophet is necessary, one who speaks God's word, one who reminds them of God's character, his threatenings, and his promises. And before getting all into this, let's consider... um, Let's consider this chapter, verses 1 to 32. Really, I have two observations for you. Two observations. The first is the extent, the great extent of Israel's depravity. That's the first observation. And the second observation, very simple observation, is the great extent of God's grace. The great extent of Israel's depravity, the great extent of God's grace. Simple but I hope helpful. So let's look now at verse 1. Here it is. As you would expect, beginning of a new cycle, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 1. We know from later in this passage that Israel has constructed what we may presume to be a number of altars to Baal, the Canaanite's God. An image in Gideon's region was also found 
And an image to be worshipped would be a direct violation of the second commandment and of the first. We do not have an exhaustive list of all the sins Israel was committing in this particular time period, but generally, Baal worship brought with it a host of other sins, including prostitution and temple prostitution. The extent of their depravity is so great that God delivers them over to the Midianites for seven years. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves dens, caves, strongholds in the mountains. Why are they in the mountains? Why are they in caves? Well, they could not operate in an open economy. Things were so bad. And things were so bad, they were routinely hiding in caves and dens. Verse 3, you'll see, whenever Israel had sown, that is, whatever crops they had farmed, Midianites would come up, also some other groups, and they would steal them or simply destroy them. And this is why when we first meet Gideon, he is threshing wheat in the wine press. It's a strange place to thresh wheat. Why is he doing that? He's doing it in order to hide it from the Midianites. Israelites took great pains to secure their crops. It's not expedient to do this in a, in a wine press. Presumably, I would think, that you do this because when you separate the wheat from the chaff, the chaff is going to float up in the air and it's going to make a big scene. And from afar, the Midianites would be able to see it and they would be able to swoop in and take the wheat. So Gideon is hiding. And isn't that interesting? The first time we see Gideon, He's in a wine press. He's hiding. He's scared. Verse 4, they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth. This is routinely happening. Notice verse 5. Their crops are destroyed. It's as if it's done by locusts. That's noteworthy. It's as if the Israelites are experiencing one of the more devastating of the Egyptian plagues. You'll remember the eighth plague brought locusts. This is from Exodus chapter 10. Moses stretched out his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind on the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind brought the locust. They covered the face of the whole earth so that the land was darkened, and they ate every herb of the land and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left. So the hail was seventh. By the time the hail comes, Egypt is in dire straits. The locusts come and eat everything the hail leaves. So they were already in bad shape. And this is, is showing us Israel is in a very, they are experiencing the worst of times. Locusts are there. They're at the eighth plague. That's the stage they're at. The extent of Israel's sin is so great, they now experience what their captors experienced hundreds of years prior. As one scholar has pointed out, the Midianites are described in a way that the Israelites should be described. Their camels and livestock are without number. Remember what was promised to Abram. Abram was told that his descendants would be like stars in the sky or like sand on the seashore. That is, your descendants will be without number. And that's the way the Midianites are described. They are so numerous. They are so great. It's as if they are without number. Israel is not some great nation 
at least not at this point. They are hiding in caves. That's where their sin has led them, not to prosperity, but to caves, to dens. They are not flourishing. They are in bondage. And that word is actually used there in the text. And it's not just economic bondage. In a more fundamental sense, Israel is in bondage to sin. They are idolaters. Their bondage is to Satan himself. This is Romans 6.16. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are the one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Sinners are slaves to sin. That's what the scriptures tell us. So all of us, all of us, at one point or another, have been slaves to sin. We don't just sin. We are dedicated to it. We are in bondage to it. What's the remedy? The prophet, the word of God. This is in verse 8. His words are meant to remind the people of what God has done for them and what he can do for them. This prophet is a precursor to Gideon. Here is an announcement. One who paves the way for Gideon, if you will. And in it, we have an indictment from God to his people. And this is a reminder of what God has already said to them. Here's the prophet. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. Also I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. The prophet, very interestingly, ends it right there. You have not obeyed my voice. It's an explanation. Why are they in such dire circumstances? It's because they are not walking in line with the law of the Lord. They have forsaken the covenant. And as always with sin, you don't just whisk it away. You don't just ignore it, hoping it will just find its way out the door. A bee may come into the house And if you're anything like me, you just ignore it. It'll probably die or might just find its way right back out the door. You can get lucky like that. Sin needs to be treated differently. Sin must be rooted out. If it's not rooted out, it will fester. It will spread. And that is what has happened to Israel. They've returned I think this is the message of God to the Israelites. They have returned to their Egyptian bondage. They're like dogs who return to their own vomit, as the proverb says. The extent of Israel's depravity is great. Could it be any worse? They are not idling in their car, going nowhere. They have put the car in reverse. They have driven hundreds of miles backwards to Egypt. Their crops are being eaten by locusts. They are being plagued because of their disobedience. And we've reached a point uh, in the history of redemption and at, at this point in the book of Judges 
that if you're reading closely, you may wonder, will God actually intervene again? I know you and I know the end of this story. I think most of us do. But think about this. If you read this closely, is God really going to intervene? They've done it again and again and again. But God does intervene. And just as he rose, rose Moses up to lead the people, to deliver the people, he is going to raise up a new Moses of sorts, a deliverer, a judge for his people. So the second observation this evening is the great extent of God's grace. I have subheadings here. We're going to see different ways that God is gracious to the people of Israel. Remember, the prophet's words are cut off. We don't hear from the prophet again. Now God is going to appear to Gideon, and it's grace from here on out. Firstly, the extent of God's grace is seen when he raises up a new judge. God does not have to send a judge, but he does so. Look at verse 11 with me. The angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Orphrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abizrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Note that. Where is Gideon's faith at this point? He believes the Lord has forsaken them. In a sense, it feels that way. It is that way. But God will never leave nor forsake his people. The angel of the Lord comes, finds a man named Gideon. Gideon is not known for being a great leader. He is not known at all, really. He's unexceptional, almost in every way. Gideon later says of himself, Oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. This fits with the theme that we've seen elsewhere in Judges, God using the least likely. And when Gideon says this of himself in verse 15, I, I think it's funny. The angel of the Lord does not correct him. He does not dispute the fact. Gideon is indeed from a weak tribe. He is indeed the least in his father's house. But this is not what the angel of the Lord proclaims to Gideon. Instead, the angel of the Lord proclaims this, O mighty man of valor, Those are the words. It does not matter where Gideon is from or who his father is or how much money he has. One thing matters. God calls him. And he calls him a mighty man of valor. And this is what Gideon should pay attention to. Frankly, it's what you and I should pay attention to. What title has God placed upon you? You who are in Christ. Those titles we read elsewhere in the scriptures, those words from God to his people, those words are the words that define you. If you are in Christ, you are a child of the living God. You are an adopted son. 
You are sealed with the Holy Spirit, beloved in Christ. That's one of your titles. You are an arrow in the hand of the warrior. You are a friend of God. You are chosen before the foundation of the world. These titles, there are plenty more beyond these. These are your reality. And so Gideon's job at this point, when he is called, O mighty man of valor, is to take heed, to believe God, to take God at his word. But unfortunately, this is not what Gideon does. Examine this for yourself, believer. Am I believing God at his word? When I hear the words, for instance, spoken this morning, that I'm an adopted son, I think we heard that in our benediction this morning. When you hear those words, do you believe those words on faith? The extent of God's grace is next seen when he consoles Gideon's weak faith. The extent of God's grace is seen when he consoles Gideon's weak faith. If anything, Gideon is known for his hesitation to receive God at his word. He's known for this because he hesitates so often. It's comical, really. It's sad, but it's comical. He hesitates. Verse 13, Gideon says to him, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? That's the first question. Why has this happened? Verse 14, the Lord says to him, go in this might of yours. This is another imperative. This is another command. Go, Gideon, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he tells him, go, and then he asks him a rhetorical question. Have I not sent you? Go. But Gideon says, oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? This is reminiscent of Moses, isn't it? How can I? I I don't speak well. And Gideon will say, my clan is the weakest. Verse 16, the Lord says to him, surely I will be with you. He's reassuring him again. I've lost count. It might be three times at this point. You shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Gideon, in response, will say, prove it. If I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign. So three, four words from the angel of the Lord are not enough. Prove it. Give me a sign. Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And then, of course, we won't get to this this evening. There's the example of the fleece. Gideon, again, hesitates. And he needs to put out the fleece. He does so twice. So it's a repeated thing. Gideon has weak faith, yet God reassures him. Can you believe it that God acquiesces to this man? Just as we saw this morning with Peter. Peter denied the Lord after walking with the Lord for three years, and yet Christ turns and restores him. It's a similar picture here. He consoles us 2 Corinthians describes God as the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort others. So this is what God does. Perhaps you may see other believers in your life, perhaps someone in your family or a friend who has weak faith or or waning faith of some sort. What is your job? 
I think it's to be patient like the angel of the Lord in this instance. It's to come alongside them. It's to console them. At times, it's to acquiesce. It's to restore them. It's to be patient, loving, kind. What sort of faith do you have, believer? Is it, is it the faith the size of a mustard seed? Because that would be generous. Would we describe Gideon's faith as, as the size of a mustard seed? But Jesus comes along and says, even if you have small faith, it can grow and grow and grow and become like a big, big tree in which fruit is produced, in which birds of the air come and make their nests. If you have small faith now, as was preached this morning, we add to our faith that we may bear fruit for the sake of his glory, for the sake of his kingdom. Verse 19, Gideon goes, he prepares a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour, the meat he put in a basket, and he put broth in a pot. So he's making a sacrifice. And he brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. Presumably this would be more difficult by pouring out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord grants him the sign that he asks for, and he puts out the end of the staff that was in his hand, and he touched the meat and the unleavened bread, and fire rose out of the rock. All these Moses illusions, do you see? A striking of the rock with the staff. There's fire along with the appearance of God. And then there's this great sign coming through a staff, just as Moses threw his staff on the ground and it became a serpent. And once he gave Gideon this sign, the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Notice that upon seeing the sign, Gideon recognizes all of the sudden that the messenger was not a mere angel, but a particular angel. It's the angel of the Lord. And Gideon understands that he has seen someone so holy and so full of majesty that he must be reassured from God that he will not die. Notice verse 22. Oh Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And Gideon knew that to see God face to face would result in death. So Gideon thinks that he's seen God. And the Lord comforts him, peace be with you, do not fear, you shall not die. So Gideon builds an altar there. This is not the sacrifice, but he builds an altar there to the Lord, and he called it the Lord is peace. Gideon is scared for his life, for he thinks he's seen God. Gideon has seen a Christophany, a pre-incarnate Christ. We see this elsewhere in the scriptures, don't we? And I think the evidence for this is twofold. Gideon believes that he's going to die. The only reason he believes that he is going to die is because he believes he's seen God. And then secondly, it's evident because Gideon then creates an altar and makes a sacrifice to the Lord God. He even gives it a special name. This is not just an angel. It's the angel of the Lord. And this fits a pattern. Altars are built after an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. Altars are built after an encounter with God. Abram makes an altar after hearing from God. 
Moses makes an altar. Jacob makes an altar after hearing from God. So the sequence of events fits the pattern. So despite Gideon's lack of faith, Christ comes. He condescends even to this weak, scared man, the lowest tribe in Israel, the least in his father's house. And yet Christ comes and he prepares a meal. Gideon goes, he brings the food, and it's the angel of the Lord who brings it to life with fire. And that, brothers and sisters, is a picture once again of the condescension of Christ. It's noteworthy that it's a meal with Christ. We see this all over the place, don't we? And it's noteworthy that after the meal is prepared, God sends Gideon out. Like the last supper, the night before he was crucified, Jesus broke bread the night of the Passover. And shortly thereafter, they would be sent out to do the difficult work of the kingdom of God. And this too shows the extent of the grace of God. God is willing to sit down with us at a table. God is willing to condescend to even people with weak faith and have a meal with us. And we're blessed to be in this church where every week we share at this table together, eating bread and drinking wine as a foretaste of that great meal that is to come. The extent of God's grace is also seen in that he commissions his judge to blot out idolatry. This is a grace. We are brought into the mission, aren't we? Same thing with Gideon. We are brought into the mission of God. And what a wonderful, what an exciting thing that is. Verses 25 to 27 say this. It came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the wooden image that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement and take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. So despite his weak faith and social standing, Gideon takes a great step of faith. He obeys God. And Hebrews 11 recognizes this. It's, it's, it's odd that, that a man of, of such weak faith is listed in Hebrews along with all these others, but he is. And he should be. He obeys God. Just an interesting side note, a commentator named James Bijan translates Gideon's name as hewer, like as in lumberjack. That's his name. He's a a lumberjack, if you will. And Gideon, in this event, lives up to his name, doesn't he? He cuts down that great tree, and Baal falls to the earth. He's a lumberjack. 
The form of obedience in Gideon's case is costly too. It nearly costs his life. But Gideon knew this was coming. This is why his faith is so great. He knew it may cost his life, but he goes forward and he cuts down the idol worship that's happening in his own backyard. He's scared. He does it at night. God honors it anyway. I think one thing we can take from this is that judgment begins at the house of God. Israel's mission, you'll recall, is to completely settle the promised land and then turn and bless the nations. Up until this point, Israel has failed to conquer the enemies. Even more, they have gone backwards, as I mentioned before. They are now being conquered. And it's noteworthy that God does not immediately drive out Israel's foreign oppressors, the Midianites. First, God must destroy the enemy within Israel. Only afterwards does the focus turn outward. And the lesson for us, as New Testament saints, is that we must do our housekeeping, that we may go forth and bless the nations. That's our call too. How often does God use a church who is full of idols? How often is, is that the sort of church that's in good position to go out and start new churches? It's not often the case. Healthy churches are the ones starting healthy churches. Healthy churches are the ones sending out healthy missionaries. God can use a crooked stick to draw a straight line. You may have heard that before. I feel like I got that from a brother in here. God can use a crooked stick to draw a straight line. That is true. He can and he does use the most feeble. And sometimes God even uses profane vessels to do his work. But the ordinary way that God blesses the world is through holy and upright churches. So yes, let us clean ourselves that we may be holy and useful for God. This from Archibald Alexander. He says this, A sovereign God may indeed employ any instrument he pleases in the conversion of sinners. But it would be unreasonable to expect that commonly he would make use of unsanctified men in this holy work. End quote. In other words, God's typical pattern is to use sanctified people for his holy work. So judgment begins here in the house of God. We start here, make sure we are a holy people, then we turn outward and go and bless the nations. The extent of God's grace is also seen when he protects his judge, Gideon. The extent of God's grace is seen when he protects his judge. This, verses 28 to 32, when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal torn down, and the wooden image that was beside it was cut down, and the second bull was being offered on the altar which had been built. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? They're angry. What's going to happen to us? Baal has fallen down. And when they had inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. And then the men of the city said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die. It's a mob. It's a mob rule. But again, this is a picture of a people gone backwards. 
As one pastor has commented, this is reminiscent of the, of the mob in Sodom and Gomorrah. Who has done this thing? Who are these people in your house? Bring them out to us that we may know them. The men of the city arise. They, they, they find he is torn down. See the sacrifice. They go looking for the one who did it, and they have a mission on their mind. But God protects Gideon. His father, Joash, who himself was a Baal worshiper, comes to the defense of Gideon. Joash has come to his senses and sees that Baal should indeed be torn down. Joash could have done this, but he didn't. Joash had been worshiping Baal along with the rest of them. And it's amazing, I think, that when you, believer, step out in faith, people really do get converted. His dad really changes. Gideon's faith produced fruit. And not just for his father's sake, but many others too will eventually change. Gideon creates a movement away from Baal worship. So God did indeed take this mustard seed of faith and he grew it into a mountain, didn't he? So consider that this this week. Where can I step out in faith? Am I not stepping out in faith in places that I should be? Because when you do, that's, that's, that's when things can and do happen. This is how the world is changed for the better. Weak men stepping out, relying on God's promises. Joash, verse 31, said to all who stood against him, Would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. So Joash not only only turns the corner, he stands between Gideon and the mob. And he says, if Baal is a god, let him plead for himself because his altar has been torn down. Therefore, on that day, he called him Jerubbabel saying, let Baal plead against him because he has torn down his altar. So Joash creates a showdown. If Baal is real, let him plead his own case. Gideon's name is changed to Jerubbabel to fit the occasion. And the mob stops. They relinquish. How often do mobs just, okay, they stop. Something wonderful happened in that moment. Jerubbabel is a hero and becomes a leader in Israel, though he was the least in his father's house. Though he was from the least of tribes, he later becomes Israel's warrior and leader. There will be more on that, Lord willing, in the next few chapters. So God's grace, the extent of his grace, is seen here in protecting Gideon. That's a grace. And it's noteworthy that God uses Gideon's father to do the protecting. There will one day come a time after the judges, after the kings, after all the prophets, where a mob will seek to kill the life of another righteous man. I speak of Jesus Christ. Though Jesus lived a perfect life, though he was far more righteous than Gideon, Samson, even Moses, 
The mob wanted to kill Jesus. Jesus' light, like Gideon's, it exposed the evil deeds of darkness, and they hated him for it. Light exposes darkness, and they hate him for it. But there's a great difference here in the story of Gideon and then the story of Jesus. Jesus' father did not shield him from the mob. Jesus' father did not come out and calm the people down when they sought his life. No, his father sent him to the mob that he may be the sacrifice once and for all. The father, the son, and the Holy Spirit, before the foundation of the world, chose to have the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, to be turned over to the mob. And that mob, along with the powers of the Jewish leadership and also the Roman government, killed that righteous man, Jesus Christ. Gideon did not have to be killed for the sake of sins. What would have happened if he died? But when Jesus dies, because he is God, he is able to pay the penalty for all who come to him in faith. So trust that his death is enough for you to get right with God. His blood satisfies the demand of the law of God. As the Hebrew scriptures say, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. How many animals would it take? We would still be going, wouldn't we? We'd have to sacrifice animals for all of eternity. But Jesus came once And because he is God, his blood has infinite power. And his blood is able to satisfy the demands of the law, which say that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So Jesus, because he is God, is able to cleanse not just the sins of one or two people or even of one nation, but all who come to him. There is enough room for you at the table And remember, Jesus Christ, he's so good, he's so wonderful, despite being holy, he will condescend to us and even sit with us, even us with weak faith. And he will dine with us at his table. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for your scriptures, and we pray that your word will be effective in the salvation of of sinners, for you say that all who come to you by faith will be saved. We pray that will happen, and again, I pray for the rest of us. Strengthen us that we may live boldly for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.